Now we come to the sixth commandment, and this is chapters 19, verse 1, through 22, verse 8. There's actually more command, more verses on this commandment than the other, and that is the command of not murder. Because there are many ways that we can kill people. Now, many of these laws are repetitious from laws that we've already gone through. So I'm not going to read these line by line because we've already talked about these in depth. But chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, are laws concerning manslaughter. And manslaughter is when you accidentally kill somebody. Now, most, all nations around them had no distinction between premeditated murder and manslaughter. If you killed somebody, it was instant death penalty. God, however, recognizes the heart. And what he says in this kind of, he gives a couple of scenarios, but one of them is like, suppose you're out in the woods and you're chopping down a tree and you throw your axe back and the head falls off, flies through the air, smacks this guy, totally kills him. Well, he killed a guy and he should be held accountable to that. But that's not like death penalty because that's manslaughter. He did not premeditate or want the death of that person. So he talks about the cities of refuge, and we've already talked about this. And he, he is allowed to flee to a series of Levitical cities, about two cities per tribal territory, where the Levites live, and there he may flee. And the next of kin pursues him, and when the next of kin gets there, they, he presents his evidence. And when the Levites hear it and they say, you know what, this is manslaughter. He did not premeditate, it was an accident. He's, he's guilty of killing somebody, but not guilty of premeditated murder. You have no right as a kinsman redeemer to execute him. However, you do have to, that guy who committed manslaughter has to live in the Levitical city for the rest of his life or till the high priest dies. And so what it ensures is there are consequences for your action. You did take an image of a God. However, you, you don't deserve to die. So you're allowed to live in the city, and you're allowed to live out your life, and you can bring your family here, and that kind of stuff, and you're going to be living with Levites, so it's not like you're going to be living with a bunch of other corrupt people trapped in a room together just so you can become more corrupt. You're going to be living with the Levites, and you're going to be with them, and you can bring your family, and you can have a normal life. But you're not allowed to have total freedom because you were careless, and you took somebody's life. And they lost their life because of your carelessness, so your life should be restricted in some way as well as consequence. However, the kinsman redeemer is not allowed to kill you because this was not premeditated. So that's the rules on the manslaughter. Basically, God is one of the first beings, nations, to make a distinction between premeditated and accidental murder. So that brings us to verse 14. If uh, they find, if the priests find it, or the Levites find it, he is guilty of murder. Now, who would kill him? God had come after him? Yes. If he is found to be guilty of murder, then the priests are to drag him out of the Levitical city, and he is on his own for the next of kin. So if I killed, if you killed my brother, it's my responsibility to chase you down. If I get to the Levitical city and we're in there, and you're not, it was accidental, then you stay there and I have to go home. If I kill you, then I'm under the death penalty now, and the priest will kill me because they ruled that you were not guilty of premeditated, and I violated that ruling by taking your life anyways. However, if you're proved to not be, if you're proven to be guilty of premeditated, then they will drag you out, and then I get to kill you. Because remember, there's no police force. 
And so, but it also means that the family are to take care of themselves because the family was the police force. The family was the welfare system. The family was the checks and balances. The family was your lawyer because the family took care of everything. So verse 14, it basically says, you must not encroach on your neighbor's property, which will have been defined in the inheritance. So God basically says, I've given you all this land. You're not allowed to take boundary markers and move them deeper into your neighbor's territory so that your territory gets expanded. Now, how is that connected to murder? Because you're reducing the land that they have, which means you're reducing the inheritance that they're going to give their children, which means you're reducing the amount of land that they can grow food on to keep themselves alive. And God takes, and remember, in Genesis, God connects the land and your life directly together. And what happens to the land is what happens to your life, and what happens to the life happens to the land. And they're directly connected in that kind of a sense. And so one of the greatest examples of one of the worst sins that you could ever commit against your neighbor, not worst sins ever, idolatry is the worst sin you can commit against God, but the worst sin that you could ever commit against your neighbor is taking their land from them. And this is in the, I think it's chapter 20 of 2 Kings. Um, Ahab wants Nabal, Naboth's land because he wants to turn it into a garden. And Naboth says, I'm not going to give it to you because this is my children's inheritance and God gave it to me. And so Ahab's wife, Jezebel, shames him, gets him killed, and takes his land. And all throughout the prophets, that is used over and over again as like the worst thing you could ever do to anybody. Because one, Ahab decided that what God gave Naboth, Ahab had every right to take. Two, he took Ahab in a boss life. And three, he took the inheritance of his children. And so to take land and to take somebody's life is considered the worst sins you could ever commit against somebody. And it is used as the most... When Ahab does that, a prophet comes and says, because you did that, you are going to die and all of your descendants are going to be wiped out too. Because you killed the descendants of Naboth by taking land from them, basically you're going to lose all your descendants. So God takes moving boundaries very seriously. Very seriously. Because the land is your life. And the land is the blessing of God. And so you're taking their life and you're taking their blessings from, of God from them. And God will jealously protect that and defend it. So God is forbidding that here. Then he goes on to witnesses. And he says, you're not allowed to just have one witness. You must have two witnesses of any crime, and they must be of worthy character. And if you have a false witness that prophesies against them, then they are to be dealt with. They are to, judges are to thoroughly investigate the matter, and if they're proven to be false, the false testimony against the accused, you must do to him what he intended to do to the accused. So if a witness says he murdered somebody I saw with my own eyes and it turns out that he's lying and he's a false witness, then you are to kill that guy. So whatever that false witness is accusing that person of and whatever penalty would have happened to that person 
is now to happen to that false witness. Now that would really keep you in check if America did it that way. <laughs> if you were found guilty, like most of the time you just get slapped with penalties and that kind of stuff, but it's like if you were punished the way that that person would have been if you'd gotten them convicted, that would really stick. And so God requires that two witnesses must be produced and they must have good reputation of character. And they also must be investigated. Now we kind of have that today. In theory, we have that. And many lawyers do practice that, the cross-examination, looking in their past and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we know that human nature can corrupt anything. Now, in chapter 20, verse 1, he deals with laws against your, na- your enemies, your neighbors. So war. So what happens if your surrounding nations come to war with you? And what God basically lays out is two major criteria. First, you're not allowed to begin hostilities with anybody around you. The Canaanites are in the land. You're allowed to deal with them. But you're not allowed to go to another nation next to you, and you're not allowed to get in tribal wars with them, and you're not allowed to to attack them, destroy them, and you're not allowed to take their land. Because remember, when we were going through Numbers we saw that God told them, you're not allowed to attack the Moabites, even though they're not nice to you. You're not allowed to attack the Edomites, even though they're not nice to you. You're not allowed to attack the Ammonites, even though they're not nice to you. But you can attack the Amorites because they don't belong here. Then when we got to Deuteronomy at the very beginning, in that first speech, God says, I am the one that honor my promise to Abraham by giving the Moabites the land that they have because the Moabites are the descendants of Lot who are connected to Abraham. I am the one who gave the land to the Ammonites, honoring my promises to Abraham because the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot connected to Abraham. I am the one that gave the land to the Edomites as I promised Abraham because Edom is a descendant of Isaac who is connected to Abraham. And so God is making it very clear, all your borders are surrounded by descendants of Abraham who I gave them their land. And to take land from them is the same as taking land from your own tribal people. And that will be punishable by that. So what's interesting is it's, it's almost, which it is, like God planned that intentionally. What better way to hold them accountable? See, if they were next to anybody, they can say, well, there's no ancestral past there. I don't know any of any promises of God to these people next to us. Let's just take the land. But by God placing the sins of Abraham all around them, but he gave them the land and clearly telling them, now they have no justification for a land war. They have no justification for a land war. Now, we can still make stuff up, (laughs) because we're really good at justifying things, but nothing is going to hold water. And so God is making it very clear, you're not allowed to attack them. You're not allowed to go after them anyway. Second, if they attack you, You're allowed to defend yourself, but you're not allowed to retaliate in extreme measure. Which means if they come and invade you, you can defend your land. God gave you this land, and I will be with you, because in the same way that I will be against you if you violate their inheritance, I will be with you and against them if they violate your inheritance. I will protect you, and I will defend you, and you will drive them out. However, you are not allowed to continue across the borders into their land 
and then in vengeance take more territory and, and, and deal more penalties upon them and go in extreme. And so you're allowed to protect yourself, you're allowed to defend your land, and I will be with you, but you're not allowed to go to extremes. And you're not. So the same way that you're to regulate yourself with people in your country, no vengeance, trials, evidence, is the same way you conduct yourself with everybody else around you. And that's what God is basically laying out in chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Then he gets into verses 16 through 20, and this is the laws concerning the Canaanites. He says, however, when it comes to the people who are not Israelites living within your land, you may make war on them. And we already covered this in chapter 7. You may make war upon them because I gave them no inheritance. But later we're going to find out that God kind of did give them the inheritance, but they've violated God and they've violated the covenant so much they have now passed the point where God is going to abandon them and they have every right to be removed from the land. And when we get to chapter 27... You're going to say the same thing with Israel. And God is going to say, I promise you, on the day that you act like the Canaanites, and the day that you violate this covenant over and over again, then I will remove you from the land just like you removed the Canaanites from the land. And chapter 27, I think, is one of the most important passages to really remind you that this isn't just God playing favorites and giving Israel land, and they can treat the Canaanites with whatever desire they want. Because God promises to do the same thing to the Israelites if they commit the same sin as the Canaanites. And so this makes it very clear that this has nothing to do with a land grab. It has everything to do with the justice of God carrying out the penalties of the law for sin. For people who persist in not repenting. Yes? Like the foreigners that God commands them to to be kind to versus these people that they're allowed to declare war. The people that are foreigner that God tells them to be kind to is that are we to assume that they're like worshiping Yahweh just like the Israelites? No, they're not worshiping Yahweh. There is no one outside of Israel worshiping Yahweh. The Ammonites are not doing it, the Moabites are not doing it, the Edomites are not doing it. What God is commanding them is you exist, Israel, for the purpose of being a blessing to the entire world. And the entire world are foreigners. And over and over and over again, Yahweh says you are to take care of the foreigner and remember that you yourselves were once foreigners. Now remember, when they were foreigners in Egypt, they were not worshiping Yahweh. Most of them were not worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping the Egyptian gods. And when he brought them out of Egypt, they said, you just brought us out here to kill us over and over and over again. And yet God still loved them and he still saved them. And he turned them into a great nation. And God is now saying, I chose you, a foreigner who was not worshiping me, so that I could transform you into this covenant relationship and bless you so that you could do the same thing that I did for you to all the other foreigners. So the idea is they are to love the foreigner regardless of their moral values, regardless of their religious beliefs, regardless of who they worship. They are to love them and they are to treat them with respect. 
Now, they're not allowed to intermarry with the foreigners. They're not allowed to bring them into the community and make them citizens and allow them to make decisions, that kind of stuff. But they're to treat them with such love and respect that that foreigner will be won over by a love that they've never seen before. And then they themselves will want to become a part of the Abrahamic covenant and thus be welcomed into it. And so basically, by the fact that they do the same thing for the foreigner that Yahweh did for them, then the foreigner will want to embrace Yahweh and become a part of the covenant, just like Israel said, I want to embrace Yahweh and become a part of the covenant. Does that make sense? So yeah, the, the implications, they are not worshiping Yahweh. And that is exactly where Jesus picks up and says, you are to go and to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the furthest parts of the earth, baptizing them all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He continues that great commission into, except the difference is Israel was supposed to attract them into Israel. We are called to go out and spread. Now, that doesn't mean that every single one of us have to go out and be a foreign missionary, but we are called to go into our communities, so to speak. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So, like I said a while ago, this is God's commentary on a lot of the issues we're dealing today on border control, refugees, immigration. You have to consider these passages. that This is the heart of God when you're dealing with these policies in America today. It's very hard to say we should close up all of our borders and shut the immigrants out when you read passages like this. Now, do I believe that we should reform it and really seriously think about, like, it's not working totally right? Yes. But closing our borders, that's not what God has called us to. And specifically, um, when, is, when Ezra and Nehemiah close the borders of Israel, when they come back for the return, God gets really mad at them. God gets really mad. They close their borders up and they're like, go away, we don't want you. You're not Israelites. Bible didn't like that. Yes. In verse 16, he goes on to say about the areas that God's giving them for inheritance. They leave nobody alive and nothing alive. But earlier in the chapter, in verse 10, what are these cities that he's talking about that they go to war against? If if the people are peaceable, then they take them as forced labor. What? Why would? Why are they warring against these people if they're not there? Verses 1 through 15 are nations outside of their borders. They go to war. They're going to war because they've been attacked and they're defending themselves. And the process of going to war, if they have victories over cities, then they're allowed to take um, people as um, slaves. But remember, one of the reasons they're taking them as slaves is because you just killed their parents in battle because their parents attacked you and you defended yourself, but their parents are now dead. So these children, or these women, don't have any way to take care of them anymore because a woman and children cannot survive without men in their life. But the men, their fathers and their brothers and their husbands just died in battle because they attacked you and God said you could defend yourself. So you're not allowed to take them. The reason you're to take them slaves is one, God doesn't want you to take these people and mix them into your culture as normal citizens because they're pagans. And he doesn't want the pagans to be part of your culture because they'll corrupt your culture. So if you keep them as slaves, then it's obvious that they're not a part of the culture, therefore they're not going to corrupt the culture. 
But two, remember slavery was drastically different and way more humane and totally regulated by God than anything we've had in our history. And remember, slaves could buy their freedom in six years too. But then in verses 16 through 20, those cities are the cities that are occupied by the Canaanites, which God says, I want you to directly attack them and eliminate them. And you are not allowed to take any prisoners because all of them, man, woman, and children, are all under the punishment of the law because they've all violated the law. Does that answer the question? Right. Good questions.